Well, welcome everybody. It's good to be in the house. The Lord is Paul said. Worshiping together. If you take your Bibles, please turn to Revelation chapter 2. We are currently in a series of messages titled Letters to the Seven Churches. And that is based on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, the resurrected and glorified Christ reveals himself to the Apostle John and tells him to write letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Today, we examine the second of those letters and learn about Christ's message to his church in Smyrna. So the major theme of the book overall, the book of Revelation, is the rule of the world by an invisible king whose reign is mediated through his bride, the church. R.C. Sproul, he once said that the purpose of the church is to make the invisible reign of Christ visible. And that's exactly what we see here in the book of Revelation. And that's what the New Testament means when it speaks of us reigning with Christ. We see that in 2 Timothy as well as in Revelation. But the rule of Christ through His church was a foreign concept. It was a strange idea to the Jews and to the Romans of the New Testament days. And sadly... It's still a strange idea to many churches today. But nevertheless, this is a truth that we cannot debate or compromise on. So let's read this passage together. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to hear what the Spirit says to us. Lord, we all have ears. All of us here sitting in this room have a pair of ears. So Lord, this is for us. This message is for us this morning. And I know, Lord, there are some people who are not members of this church. And I know there are some that are visitors. But, Lord, all of us have ears this morning. And we need to hear what you have to tell us. We need to hear how important it is, Lord, to be part of a church that is willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Lord, we all need to hear how important it is to be part of a body of believers who loves you enough to suffer for the sake of Christ. Lord, we don't wish suffering upon us, Lord, but this is characteristic of a church that loves you, a church that is willing, willing to face these trials, to face the suffering, to face the persecution, wherever it may come. So we pray for your help this morning. We pray for wisdom to understand, really, how this applies to us 
in the 21st century. We do pray, Father, that above all, you would help us to understand that it is our purpose to make your reign visible in this world, wherever, Lord, you place us, wherever you choose to put us for your glory. So we ask for your blessings upon us now as we study your word together. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So we've already seen from last week's message that a mark of a true and living church is love. Um, And that was a characteristic that was lacking in the church of Ephesus, sadly enough. But this week we will see the mark of a true and living church which is suffering for the glory of Christ. Now our willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of our love. Let me repeat that again. A willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of our love. All you need to do is ask your wife who's given birth to your children. A willingness to suffer is a mark of genuine love. And the one naturally follows the other. We are willing to suffer for those that we love. Evidently, Christians in Smyrna had not lost their first love for Christ. They had a genuine love for Christ. Christians in Ephesus were, however, a little different, as we saw last week. And we see, because they were prepared to suffer for the name of Christ, just like we see Peter and John in Acts chapter 5, they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. So my first point this morning is in verse 8. We see the place. The place in which they lived. So we have in context now, so we can understand the suffering that was involved. We see in verse 1, sorry, in verse 8, the letter is addressed to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And we do not know precisely when this church was founded, perhaps around the time of Acts chapter 19, when, when all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, so very possibly in Acts 19 this church was Founded, But regardless of when the church was planted, when the church was born, we know much about the city of Smyrna itself. And Smyrna was approximately 50 kilometers northwest of Ephesus. Remember, this is a postal route where these letters are being delivered. And Ephesus comes first, and straight after that, 50 kilometers northwest, comes Smyrna. So it was considered at that time to be one of the most beautiful cities in Asia Minor. Um, It was definitely one of the best designed cities in that part of the world at that time. And of the seven cities mentioned in Revelation here in chapter 2 and 3, Smyrna is the only one that is still standing. You can go visit it today. It's modern-day Izma in in Turkey, uh, where it was originally situated. But two things that we need to understand here from this passage. First, the city was, was very loyal to the Roman state. In fact, they were more loyal than any other city at that time. They were fanatically committed to the government. In the midst of this, in the midst of this context, in the midst of this, the Lord God plants a Bible-believing, God-fearing church. But secondly, Smyrna boasted also the greatest Jewish population of any city in the whole of Asia Minor. As we will see, this this was a problem. This posed a tremendous problem for the Christians. 
Well, the church's greatest opposition during that time was from the, the Jewish, the, the Jews they were committed to Judaism. But the word Smyrna comes from a Greek word meaning myrrh, and we all know where they used myrrh. Uh, myrrh was a beautiful, fragrant um, ointment uh, which was brought to Jesus at his, at his birth. It was used to anoint Jesus at his death. Um, so you could say that this church had a beautiful aroma because of the way that it was prepared to suffer for the sake of, of Christ. Let's see the second point here. In verse 8 as well, the person. The person. The person whom they followed. Jesus here in verse 8, if you look there in the passage, introduce, introduces himself to the church as the first and the last which was dead and is alive. And that's significant. The Lord chooses his words carefully. He chooses his titles carefully. And if you turn back to um, chapter 1, in verse 17 and verse 18, Jesus is laying his hand on a terrified John who has just seen the resurrected Lord. He has just seen a vision of, of heaven like he has never seen before, and he's terrified. And the Lord lays his hand on him. And in verse 17, the Lord says, Fear not, I am the first and I am the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. This was a title. The first and the last was a title, and it's taken directly from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 44 as well as chapter 48. And it's used to describe God as Jehovah. So we learn a couple of things here from Christ's description of himself. Firstly, by using this title for himself, he's claiming to be Jehovah. He's claiming to be Jehovah. And the Lord knows that this church is going through persecution. He knows this church is suffering. So he addresses himself as the Lord Omnipotent, the one with all authority, the one who is sovereign in heaven and on earth. And this, we'll see, is a great comfort, is a great encouragement to the believers. Um, the one who is the first and the last speaks words of truth to anyone. And he speaks words of truth to these people in Smyrna who are struggling, who are suffering, facing these trials. But secondly, we see that, that Christ is victorious. We see in that address the way he describes himself. He says, I have died and I have come to life. He refers, he refers to the very cross. He says, I was dead. And then he refers to the resurrection. And now I am alive. So in the face of death, their persecution was to the point of death. Many of these believers were being killed for their, their faith in Christ. But in the face of death, Jesus reminds his church that he has conquered death. That death has no hold on a child of God, on a true child of God. We live and then we die. Christ lived and he died but he came back to life again. And he has victory over death. And because he lives, as believers, we too will live with him if we have put our faith and our trust in him. His victory is our victory. And Christ, who is eternal and victorious, addresses words to the church here in Smyrna. And he wanted to encourage them in their suffering with the truth that he is eternal and victorious. 
Look at verse 9. They faced problems. They faced problems. In verse 9, he addressed them as the sovereign one who has power over death. But now Jesus commends the church to his faithfulness. He reminds them of his faithfulness. I know thy works, he says. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. But you are rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. This commendation is, is significant when we consider their problems. And their problems really can be categorized in two ways. The pressure and the praise. Um, the pressure. The word tribulation is a word which refers to pressure. And the, and the pressure they faced obviously brought out their, their character. Proved to the world that they belonged to Christ. It proved to the world that they were that they were like Christ. And every pressure that we face in this world, we need to remember, is allowed by God. It is permitted by God in order to make known what we are really like. And character is not revealed primarily when things are going well, when things are going smoothly. It is when we are squeezed that we really show what we are made of. And the Smyrnans, under great pressure, they pass this test with flying colors. And consider some of the pressures that these believers faced. Firstly, from the Roman government. The Roman government demanded that the church of the first century acknowledge their rulers as absolutely sovereign. The state demanded their allegiance to their emperors above any other god. And of course, the Christians in Smyrna refused to worship the emperor by saying, Caesar is Lord. That's what they were supposed to do. But obviously, for Christians, only Jesus is Lord. And so the unwillingness of these Christians to, to worship, Caesar branded them as unpatriotic, unloyal, and as atheists. It is likely that Christians in Smyrna, they were ostracized and work became unavailable to them and opportunities for promotions, opportunities for growth were all taken away and they were excluded from the mainstream of society. Very, very possible. So they faced pressure from the government. They faced pressure from the state. But they also faced pressure from the synagogues. They faced pressure from the religions of the day. Verse 9, in the last part, the Lord says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So when we hear those words, they seem a little bit harsh to our ears at, at first glance. And it seems as if this is some, some cultic group that is bordering on full-fledged Satanism. And actually, the Lord here is referring to the local synagogue where the Jewish people would meet. You could call these the Orthodox Jews. Um, the church in Smyrna faced this intense persecution from the Jews that were around them at that time. And remember, there were more Jews in Smyrna than in any other city in Asia Minor. And it is clear from the New Testament that the church's greatest opposition in the first century came from the Jewish people. There was physical 
a physical opposition here. Remember, there was a racial, a racial descent from, from Jacob, Israel. That doesn't mean that you are automatically a child of God just because they were born Jews. And there are many who are national Jews who do not belong to Christ. And that's what the Lord is referring to right here. Because they have not been born again. You know, in India, every person who was not a Jew, sorry, everybody in India who was not a Hindu or was not a, a Muslim called themselves Christian because they were born into a Christian family. That is not how you become a child of God, just like the Jews learned. You have to be born again. These were the ones that were opposing the church in Smyrna. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. John was a, a Jew. And they were speaking of their, their fellow um, Jews that were, that were persecuting him. And Christ was emphasizing here that, that Jews who hated and rejected him were just as much Satan's followers as those who worshipped the emperor. John MacArthur, he comments about this. He says, Unbelieving Jews commonly accused Christians of cannibalism based on a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of immorality based on a perversion of the holy kiss with, with which believers greeted each other. Breaking up of homes when one spouse became a Christian and the other did not, it often caused conflict. Atheism, because as already noted, Christians rejected the pagan pantheon of the deities of the, of the Romans. And political disloyalty and rebellion, hoping to destroy the Christian faith, some of the Smyrna's wealthy, influential Jews reported these blasphemous, false allegations to the Romans. And these haters of the gospel were a synagogue of Satan meaning they assembled to plan their attack on the church, doing Satan's will. So you can see the opposition that was very real towards these believers, these Bible-believing Christians. But we also see, as a result of this pressure, as a result of this persecution, that they faced poverty. They faced poverty, and this was another part of the the pressures that was put upon them, placed upon them. We see the word poverty mentioned there. Um, Christ said in verse 9, I know your poverty. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't have enough money to go to the cheesecake factory this week or next month. They were destitute. They were destitute. Smyrna was a very wealthy city. And it's strange. It's worth observing here that a group of believers were singled out as poor in such a very wealthy city. You know, we can just guess here, but possibly the Christians belong to a lower rank, a lower caste of society. Um, we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says in verse 26, Not many were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. Talking about the Corinthian church. Or, because of the Christian love for the poor, it caused them to give generously to those that were in need. And as a result, they too became poor. Could be, possibly. But it doesn't explain how this would be the reason for their tribulation. 
Probably more likely is the fact that Christians would not conduct their business practices like the rest of the, the people in Smyrna did. They weren't willing to pay the bribe. They weren't willing to be corrupt like the rest of the world was. Um, Non-Christians had very negative attitudes towards Christians as well. And obviously they weren't given the jobs that were needed, the jobs that were available. They wouldn't give them to the, to the Christians. And they refused to engage in any business with them. And of course that led to the material poverty of the Christians. But remember, folks, the Lord knew of their poverty. It wasn't like the Lord was, was rubbing his hands and saying, Oh, I'm sorry this has happened. The Lord knew about this. The Lord allowed this to happen. He was sovereign over this situation. And it's interesting to note that the Lord does not promise material wealth if these believers are faithful. And please hear that. He simply commends them for their faithfulness despite their poverty. You know, we have this false gospel today that preaches, if you are faithful to God, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. It is a false gospel from the devil himself, folks. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. We see right here, the Lord is knowing of their wealth, of their poverty. He is allowing them to suffer in their poverty. And we need to remember, the Lord allows suffering for a reason. He uses suffering for a purpose. He doesn't prof- promise us presents and gifts and all types of Wealth, if we follow him, that's not what the gospel is. We see the privilege that they they faced in verse 9. The privilege which they lived, despite the pressures they faced and the poverty they experienced, the Lord said of this church, but you are rich. That sounds like a contradiction at first, doesn't it? They were poor in material things, But they were wealthy in the things that mattered to God. They were wealthy in the things that really mattered. We see here in the scriptures and we see throughout the whole Bible, Christ's values are not the same as the world's values. The minute we think it's important to be rich and wealthy and prosperous and successful, perhaps we're following what the world is teaching us. Perhaps we're not listening to what Christ is teaching us. People in the world value material riches. We just need to go into the car park and see for ourselves. Christ values spiritual riches. But, Christ said, you are rich. John Stott said, of course Christ cares deeply about the poor. Of course he cares deeply about the needy and the oppressed. Scripture makes that plain. But at the same time, it adds that those who lack much of this world's goods can still be rich towards God, rich in faith, rich in good deeds, and have treasures in heaven. Now, the bottom line is simply this, folks. Character is worth far more than comfort. Now, if comfort comes at the price of compromise, it is not worth it. It is not worth it. We live on this earth for 
Three score and ten. Seventy years, the scripture says. And then we will face the Lord and give an account to the Lord. We'll give an account to the Lord. And then we'll spend the rest of eternity with Him or without Him. Comfort is not the object of our life. It's not the purpose. It's not the pursuit of our eternity, folks. And the Sumerians understood this. And they stood for the truth at all costs. Even when they lost the things that were valuable in the eyes of the world. They were not willing to compromise on their principles. They had a powerful impact on the world around them. In the midst of their terrible suffering. And the Lord commends them. The Lord commends them. Not once here does the Lord criticize this church. Not once. We see the persecution here. My fifth point. The persecution in verse 10. Which they expected. And after commending the Christians here in the church in Smyrna. For their suffering which they had already endured. Christ warns them that more is on the way. Christ commanded the church not to be afraid. Look at verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. So commentators have different ideas about the the literal length of this ten days, but The key word here is not the 10 days, but the word that. Look at the word that there in verse 10. We could paraphrase the verse like this. The devil will cast you into prison in order that God's plan may be fulfilled and you will be tried. God is allowing the persecution that God's will be done. God's plan be fulfilled. Though Satan would be behind the persecution, it was God who was orchestrating everything in order to fulfill his purpose, not the devil's purpose. Exactly like he did with Job in the Old Testament. But the Lord would give them strength to endure it. And that's important for us to notice here, folks. Christ had said to his disciples in John 16, Verse 33, in the world you will have tribulation, you will have persecution, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Because of Christ's victory, we can sing with the psalmists in Psalm 56. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Regardless, Christ commanded them not to be afraid. Remember, folks, Satan tempts us so that he can destroy us. Satan tempts us so that he can destroy us. He wants us to sin. He wants us to deny Christ. He wants us to turn away from Christ. He wants us to be unfaithful. He wants us to be rebellious. But the Lord tests us To build up our faith. Very different. Very different. The Lord engages His church. He encourages His church. That they should be faithful. Not just when it suits them. 
It should be faithful not just when it's comfortable. Look what he says there. You need to be faithful unto death. Not just when things are going right, but faithful unto death. And the scripture says here, he would give them a crown of life. This crown of life is final and full salvation. And if we persevere through the difficulties that we face, we will be fully and finally saved in the end. This is not talking about a work salvation. We know the scriptures don't teach it. Ephesians tells us clearly, for by grace we are saved through faith, not by works. So this is not talking about works. This is talking about the fruit of your faith, the fruit of your love. The Ephesians, the Ephesus church didn't have that. And the fruit of their, their love was that they were not willing to suffer. They didn't have that, that pure love which they were supposed to have. The fruit of your love for Christ is perseverance in suffering. That's evidence of your salvation is that you are willing to persevere and that you are not going to turn your back on Christ. And those who do are not saved in the first place. And those who do don't really know Christ. And we all know somebody like that, I'm sure, who's been to church and even sang the songs we sang and been involved in Bible studies and been involved in the different ministries and then all of a sudden stopped coming to church. Did they lose their salvation? No. They never had salvation in the first place. They never had salvation in the first place. Those who persevere to the very end will be rewarded with this crown of life. We need to remember, folks, that Christ did not save us to make us happy, happy, happy. Christ saved us to make us holy, holy, holy. He did not save us to deliver us from our problems. He saved us so that through our problems, we would show the world how glorious our Savior is. Christ allows these pressures in our lives that we may be tried, and that we may persevere by looking to Him alone. Not trusting in our, in our own intelligence, not trusting in our own education, not, not trusting in our own bank account, which they didn't have. Trusting in Christ alone. John MacArthur says here, the crown of genuine saving faith is eternal life. Perseverance proves the genuineness of our faith as we endure suffering for Christ. Think a moment about a water-saturated sponge. If we push down With our fingers, even slightly, the water runs out onto the table. And we immediately know what fills the the inside pockets of this sponge. And the same is true of ourselves. The same is true of believers. We can tell what fills us inside, but what comes out of us when we are under pressure. So what comes out of you when you are under pressure? Are you trusting God? Are you turning to Him? Are you running to the foot of the cross? 
Or do you behave like the rest of the world? There's fighting and anger and a whole bunch of problems in your marriage because of pressures that you face. Or do you turn to the cross? Do you turn to the cross? We see here the promise which the Lord gives and the promise which they heard and the promise which they trusted in. In verse 11, look there. This is the conclusion the Lord closes with to the church in Smyrna. In verse 11, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The second death is defined in Revelation 20 as the lake of fire. This is eternal punishment. And I read this week somewhere. That if you are born once, you will die twice. But if you are born twice, you will die once. You understand that, yes? If you are born once, which means a physical birth, you will face a physical death and a spiritual death in the lake of fire forever and ever. Just like this passage says. But those who are born twice... Those who've had a physical birth and a spiritual birth. Those who've been born again, who've put their faith in Christ, will only die once. The physical death. They will never face the wrath of God in the lake of fire. They will never experience this eternal punishment that is reserved for those who have rejected Jesus Christ. But have embraced the world. They've embraced the comforts of this world. They have believed a lie and have followed the creatures rather than the Creator. Those of us who know Christ, who have been born again, will escape the second death. If you have not experienced the second birth in Christ, perhaps today is the day the Lord is speaking to you about that. You've put your faith in other things. You've put your faith in, in another person, maybe in your wife, maybe even in a pastor, maybe even in a church, maybe even in an organization, but you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be born again. This is essentially the same promise. In verse 10, those who persevere will not be hurt of the second death. They will receive a crown of life. You know, it seems fitting today to conclude with the story of the death of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, and he later became the bishop of Smyrna, of this church. Let me read it to you. Let me read the story to you. It was 2nd of February, probably in the year of 156 AD. The venerable bishop who had fled from the city at the pleading of his congregation was tracked down to his hiding place. He made no attempt to flee. Instead, he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission to retire for prayer, which he did for two hours. Then as they traveled into the city, the officer in charge urged him to recant. What harm can it do, he asked, to sacrifice to the emperor? Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was roughly pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul in the amphitheater who addressed him, respect your years, swear by the genius of Caesar, 
And again, swear and I will release you. Revile Christ. To which Polycarp replied, listen to these words. For 86 years, I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul persisted. Swear by the genius of Caesar. I have wild beasts. If you will not change your mind, I will throw you to them. Call them, Polycarp said. Since you make light of the beasts, I will have you destroyed by fire. Unless you change your attitude. Well, angry Jews and Gentiles gathered wood for the pile. But Polycarp stood by the stake, asking not to be fastened to it. And he prayed, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you. I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. The fire was lit, but as the wind drove the flames away from him and prolonged his suffering, a soldier put an end to his misery with a sword. I don't have a martyr complex. I don't wish suffering upon myself or upon any of you. But these letters... In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, were written not to individuals, but to bodies of believers in Christ. They were written to churches. They were written to us. If we will persevere with the, the Smyrnians, we must do as a body, we must do together, seeking to carry one another when, when help is needed, when we need to be carried. It's significant that the only city of the seven addressed that remains standing today is the city, the city of Smyrna. And I believe firmly, as the church goes, so goes the culture. As the church goes, so goes the culture. And perhaps the city of Smyrna stands today because the church of the, Smyrna, of the first century refused to compromise. They refused to compromise. And almost a hundred years after the letter was written, the believers in in Smyrna, was still persevering despite the persecution, despite the suffering. What, wouldn't it be wonderful to have the character of this church? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have the character that these believers had? Of course, this character will require that we are willing to take up our cross and to follow Christ, not just on a Friday, folks, but every day of the week. When we face our boss, when we face our friends, when we face our neighbors that don't know Christ. Suffering for Jesus Christ is a mark of every true Christian. It's a mark of every true church. And persecution for the sake of Christ is repeated in the scriptures. We will not escape this, folks. If that is your pursuit in life, then there is something wrong in your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus himself experienced poverty. Jesus himself experienced suffering. Jesus himself experienced slander, which led to his unjust imprisonment and death, ultimately. So he himself understands. He himself experienced what we experience, what the church in Smyrna experienced. So he understands. He is a compassionate high priest. He knows what we feel. And throughout the scriptures and throughout the ages, God's children have endured suffering for the sake of Christ. But what about us this morning? And the sad truth is that we tend to shrink away from suffering, especially for Christ's sake. And we do this by compromising, compromising on our faith. You know, the world is opposed to the gospel. The world is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we tend to dilute the gospel and lower really the standards, that, so the standards of God's truth so that we don't offend anybody. We love the praise of men more than the praise of God brother this week told me his story, that he had an opportunity to visit a, a Muslim friend in hospital. He's one of our members of the church. And they have known each other for a long time, and out of care and compassion for his friend, he, he went to encourage him in the hospital. But he said as he walked away from his friend's hospital bed, his heart was so convicted because he did not pray for his unbelieving friend, in the name of Jesus Christ. He realized then and there that he had compromised on his faith and, and he felt terrible for it. He feared man more than he had feared God. He told me he was going to make amends, whatever the cost was. But God expects us as believers, folks, not to compromise in a world around us that doesn't know Christ. We are not to compromise. The only way we are going to have an impact in this world, especially in our own culture, is if we stand for what is true. If we love Christ enough that we will not compromise, despite the suffering, despite the pressure that the world will put upon us. God expects New Life Church to be the church, to be a church. We need to submit to the dominion of Christ and, and make the invisible reign of Christ visible all around us. We need to have the same desire like Smyrna. We need to have our whole set on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our whole heart, not just some of it. And May we be used for God's glory and Christ's honor in a great way. As we live here in the UAE, we can have an impact for the glory of Christ here in the middle of the Middle East. The Lord mentions His cross to the Ephesians. And He spoke of His resurrection to the Smyrnians. And the only way we can live these victorious lives is if we embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. If we embrace the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we must understand that we can persevere to the end. We can 
For Jesus, who was dead, is alive again, folks. He is alive again. And Smyrna was a suffering church because it was an uncompromising church. And may God help us to be a church such as this for His glory. Father, we come to You this morning with heavy hearts, Lord. This is not an easy message to preach because I know the world around us has influenced our thinking and our hearts in such a way that we want nothing to do with suffering. We want the most comfortable cars that are available. We want the most comfortable houses that are available. We want the most comfortable furniture that is available. We want comfort. We live for comfort. So this morning, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for taking our eyes off the cross. Forgive us, Lord, for forgetting the suffering that you endured to secure our salvation. And our home in heaven wasn't without a price. Just like we purchase homes and pay rent for where we stay, our place in glory was not without a cost. It cost the very blood of your Son to earn our redemption. So this morning, Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us as a church. That we would be a church that is willing to love you to the point of death. To be a church that loves you enough to suffer persecution because of the name of Christ. Because he is worthy. Because he has victory. Because he has all authority in heaven and earth. Because he is the creator, not the creature. And we worship you today. Help us, Lord, we pray, to love you the way we should. In Jesus' name I ask.